WNYC is teaming up with NPR to bring you a new daily podcast, Consider This. We'll bring you the biggest news stories and what's happening in our community to help you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Laurie Moore chose Day Old Baby Rats, a story by Julie Hayden, which was published in the magazine in 1972. Escaping from the street, she looks up to see where she is. A mistake. Her head begins to spin. Laurie Moore's stories have been appearing in The New Yorker for more than 20 years. Her most recent book is a novel called A Gate at the Stairs. It's out in hardcover from Knopf and is coming out in paperback in September. She joins us from a studio in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Lori. Hi, Deborah. So Julie Hayden died in 1981, and although she worked at The New Yorker for 16 years, the 10 stories that she published here seem to have been mostly forgotten. She had a collection called The Lists of the Past, which is long out of print. What made you think of reading this story? I had first read this story as a college student when it was part of an anthology that had been assigned in an English course that I was taking. And the anthology was uh, Susan Cahill's Women in Fiction. And Julie Hayden was, I think, probably the youngest person in the anthology. Maybe Alice Walker was younger. But the story fascinated me for a number of reasons. I felt that somehow it was speaking some sort of dangerous truths about being a young woman in New York, and it just, the writing was riveting. I just trusted the whole project of it and the daring of it. And I thought instead of Holly go lightly, we have we have Holly go darkly here. <laughs> and when I went to try to find, you know, literary friends who might have heard of her, I could find no one. And this was in the 70s and then in the 80s. And then eventually I did find someone who'd heard of her, and they said, oh, yes, isn't that story great? And I said, whatever happened to Julie Hayden? And she said, well, I think she was hit by a car. There there were these rumors that were untrue, that she had somehow been involved in a traffic accident, tragic early death. This was before the days of Google, Yeah. (laughs) so I I couldn't Google her. And it turned out, you know, Julie Hayden did have a very tragic early death, but it wasn't it wasn't in a car accident. She had cancer, which went somewhat untreated, and she was an alcoholic, and um, and her last days were not were not good. But um, this story was written nine years before that. Her life was still quite functional, and she was working at the magazine. And but at the same time, it's about a woman who's living in New York City, like her, and who's under quite severe psychological duress. So it's a bit of a foreshadow of, of what's going to come. Is there anything you think that we need to tell listeners to watch out for while you read it? Not really, but there is an italicized part of the narrative voice that recurs, and that's hard to do when one reads, but that is a sort of inner voice in the protagonist's mind that she's both registering from the outside world and her own inner world. It's this sort of god of fear or something, but it shows up as italics on the page. It probably is difficult to discern for the listener, but the blend of the inner and outer world, I think, will become clear as they listen. We'll talk more after the story. 
Here's Laurie Moore reading Day Old Baby Rats by Julie Hayden. Down near the river, a door slams. Somebody wakes up, immediately flips over onto her back. She dreamt she went fishing, which is odd because she's never fished in her life. She thought someone was calling her baby. There's a lot of January light crawling from beneath room-darkener shades, casting mobile shadows on walls and ceiling. The mobile is composed of hundreds of white plastic circles the size of communion wafers. As they spin, they wax and wane, swell and vanish like little moons. Their shadows are like summer, like leaves, the leaves of the plane tree at the window, which hasn't any right now, being in hibernation. Through the crack between the window and sill, air that tomorrow's papers will designate unsatisfactory flows over one exposed arm, making the hairs stand up like sentries. Long trailer trucks continue to grind along the one-way street, tag end of a procession that began at 4 a.m. with the clank and whistle of trains on dead-end sidings, as melancholy as though they were the victims they had carried across the Hudson. The trucks carry meat for the village butcher shops, the city's restaurants, pink sides of prime beef that you cannot purchase at the supermarket, USDA choice or commercial pigs, lambs, chickens, rabbits, helped off the trucks by shivering men who warm their hands over trash basket fires. In the apartment across the hall, the baby is bawling, I want my milk. It's cold and bloody in the refrigerated warehouses where the meat is stored prior to distribution. It's pretty cold in here, too. On her feet now, naked, she looks under the shade, which snaps smartly to the top of the window, disclosing a day, very clear for January, and colorful, stained glass sky over a row of 19th century houses, painted pink and lime and lilac and beige, topped by clusters of chimney stacks, one of which emits a tornado of oily black smoke fast dispersing. She ought to report it. I am sorry. The Office of Air Resources is closed till Monday. Please state the nature of the offense and the name and address of the violator, and we will take action upon it when the office is open. This is a recording. A pair of eyes on the fire escape. The golden gaze of the fat, seven-toed Tom from the next apartment. She hasn't a stitch on, backs away. Next thing, she's in the middle of the kitchen, bare and green as a guppy, trembling from head to toe so much that it is difficult to open the door to the lower cabinet, which turns out to house a sizable bottle collection. On her knees, she pours into a glass an ounce of scotch, part of which sloshes over the linoleum in an amber puddle, fast dispersing. She gets the glass between her teeth. One, two, three, wait. The tremor peaks, subsides. She yawns and wipes the sleep from her eyes. Getting dressed now, the radio going, the listener-sponsored radio. Don't speak his name. He is everywhere, like spring. His eyes are leaves. She can find only one shoe and digs desperately in the welter of footwear like a retreat of mercenaries in the bottom of the closet. How did she get so many shoes? She tends to lose things that go in pairs. Where is my other glove? My new earring? Who took it? She will wonder helplessly, 
too old to pray to St. Anthony, patron of lost objects. His eyes are leaves, the birds his messengers. Certainly somebody took her wallet last week while she was shopping for pants on 8th Street. It was lifted rather than absentmindedly abandoned in a restaurant or on top of a cigarette machine. Later that evening, a thin, limping man showed up on the doorstep with one half of her driver's license. He explained he had found it in the litter basket in Washington Square. Half-shod, she switches to an all-news program. It is after 10 o'clock. Utilities are unchanged. The other shoe is in the bathroom. She spies it, spitting out a mouthful of toothpaste, under the radiator. She wraps herself in a white rabbit fur coat and goes out without locking the door, fumbling for her huge polarized sunglasses in her leather shoulder pouch, down two flights of stairs and onto the sidewalk. Now here is the big brown UPS truck lumbering illegally up onto the curb and halting just short of the plane tree, which bears two deep gouges where the same truck wounded it last Monday morning. The driver hustles out and starts up the steps with a brown parcel whistling. In the vestibule, he rings her bell, which, of course, nobody answers, since the apartment occupant is beside the truck, copying the license plate and other relevant numbers into a little spiral notebook. Still whistling, the young man with the brown uniform and small brown mustache comes back out with his parcel. The woman in the furry coat leans against the tree, glaring through her dark lenses. Lady, he stops in mid-trill. Be nice. I can't go through this again. Just sign the little slip. I give you the package, and everybody's happy. Through clenched teeth, she says, This time I am really going to report you, really. Do you know that tree cost $100 to plant? And people like you, people like you... But the last words emerge with difficulty, and tears fuzz the sharp outlines, her polarized vision of the sunny world. He cannot see the tears. She's dying to know what is in the package. With rage, the driver throws it back into the truck, this side up, down. You're bad news, lady, he yells, hurtling onto the driver's seat, revs the motor. Afraid he's going to take out his temper on the tree, she gets in front of it, and now he cannot move the truck. If you don't get out of my way, I'm going to run you down. His voice changes. What do you want from me, lady? He implores unanswerably. He gets his truck away without a mishap after all. On the next block, the drunk man starts out of the doorway where he has lain all night, stumbling toward her, clawing at his stained clothes. Hey, don't I know you from somewheres? His eyes look like pebbles, yellow and veined. I know you. I know you, a nice lady. Won't you give me something, please? Fourteen cents. All I need is like fourteen cents. Smiling brilliantly, dancing around her. I know you. I watches you comings and you goings. Finally, she digs up from the depths of her pocketbook some change, which falls to the sidewalk. He goes after it, fumbling and muttering in the gutter. All fall, he was a worry to her, sleeping so still in his doorway, a crumpled overcoat and a bottle still in its paper bag at his head like a candle. He has lost the overcoat but acquired some mittens. How does he know her? How has he managed to fight the cold this long into January? 
back in the apartment with the newspapers and their interesting headlines. Four chain stores firebombed. Seven Long Island children die in bus crash. Fear ten slain in rackets war. Grave diggers call strike. Drug girl twelve tells a freakout. A hungry baby dies. Jail mom. Army dismisses charges of war crimes by general. Foe attacks. Pope blesses. Actual tests used to prepare pupils for reading exams. At the table, with a cup of tea and a cigarette, she gets the gist of the day's news and what the department stores are featuring since she has errands to run, things to buy. Fidgeting, tongue between her teeth. Don't do that, her mother used to say watchfully. You'll ruin your occlusion. Reaching the weather report, occluded front. She looks warily around as though she were being watched, but there is nobody in the house which is suddenly so quiet the only sound is her own, her heartbeat. There are no clocks in the apartment. What time has it gotten to be? She rushes to the telephone to dial the time, and when she lifts the receiver, a voice is immediately in her ear. Washington operator here, I have a person-to-person call for... Mm, blur. Hello, New York, will you accept the call, please, New York? Superimposed on the operator's voice is another, tinny and distant, a woman's, but she cannot make out the words... Who does she know in Washington? No, she will not accept the call. She will not accept the charges. It must be past noon. The sun will be setting before too long, before 4.37, according to the newspaper. She has not lost her wristwatch, but she cannot seem to extricate it from the repair shop. It's been there for three weeks with a shattered crystal and a broken hand that she suspects they're keeping in traction. She turns her own hands, palms up, The creases gleam with sweat, snail tracks. Steadier now, tongue emergent, she's refilling a pocket flask from the kitchen liquor supply. It's a four-ounce hip-hugger model with a cute red leather jacket that can be unbuttoned for cleaning. She carries it everywhere in case of emergency, of entrapment in subway or elevator. Its predecessor fell on the floor of the ladies' room at the Art Students League, where... She was waiting for a perennial art student to finish his life studies class so they could go out to dinner and drinks or vice versa. How sorry she was to lose it. But she quickly replaced it with an identical model from Hoffritz. With him, she went to an island remote from the city and from everything else. Ten miles out in the Atlantic, off the coast of Maine, where the foghorn cries all night long, once a minute, It hurts, warning ships off the rocks where lobsters lie low, skittering anyway into the baited traps. And the brightest thing by night is the eye of the lighthouse, since the island is without community electricity. The wind blew constantly on the headlands, several hundred feet over the sea. When the fog lifted, the ocean was the color of melted blue wax. Way down on the rocks, seals grazed, polychromatic as pigeons, blue, gray, brown, and spotted. Once they thought they saw, far out, the spout of a whale. Some sportsmen that week harpooned a small whale, a black fish, and towed it into the harbor, stranding it on Fish Beach. All afternoon they worked to extract their three spearheads up to the armpits in blubber, till the sand was red and sticky and thick with flies. 
She and he walked in the woods when he wasn't painting, watched birds and the sunset, ate lobster with slippery fingers. Then she had an appetite and used to collect leftover oranges or bananas from other tables to devour thoughtfully at night while the lighthouse spun and the foghorn ached. Having gone through her fruit and her library books, she got into bed at last. He sighed, set on by his own bad dreams. It wasn't a success that holiday. Making love in a blueberry patch, they reached up for berries and ate them where they lay. The days seemed very long. On the rocky cliffs they fought, wind whipping their barbed words out to sea. Back on the mainland, at the bus terminal, early in the morning. You'll be all right, he asked, peering into her face as though it were a steamed-up mirror. Tropical fish in the living room move around in their tank, weaving gaudily through the underwater foliage, striped golden angelfish, jewel-like neon tetras, gouramis of fat black molly. The one-eyed catfish oozes along the bottom of the aquarium as though vacuuming a rug. As she bends over them, they rise, expecting a shower of ant eggs, frantically kissing the surface. She has forgotten to feed them again. Somebody leaves the house for the second and final time that day. A fire siren evokes the noise of every dog on the block. There has been a fire in the Chinese laundry. An old Italian lady in a greasy black dress giggles at the snakes in the pet shop window, her week's groceries piled in her grocery cart and her cat on top of them. He spreads like fire. Don't smile. The Goodwill exterminators have a new exhibit. Among the pickled bugs and childishly hand-lettered signs, a jar of milk-white shrimps with tails labeled Day-Old Baby Rats caught in a Volkswagen on Perry Street by Leon. She digs her nails into her gloveless palms. Don't smile. He hates it. Pretend not to tremble. She checks her left wrist to see what time it is. The sign over the bank spells out time and temperature in yellow dots. 1257, 79 degrees. Very warm for January. Near the subway entrance, she buys the afternoon paper and a man pushes her change over the papers with his hook. The train stops just outside of the 14th Street station and refuses to budge for several minutes. At 23rd Street, for some reason, a mob storms the cars, hustling for seats. A very small woman gets jammed in the half-open door. A midget, really, but still an ordinary-looking middle-aged woman in an out-of-style tweed coat and an out-of-town hat with a little veil, which is looped rakishly, accidentally, over one ear. She appears so helpless that someone offers her a seat. Hurry up, Daddy, over here. The other half of the door shuts and she screams. The door opens. Her husband, who is taller but only by an inch, rushes in, swinging a tiny child over the edge of the platform. They plop him down onto the seat she gave up and stand guard protectively. I need a lollipop, the baby shouts over the shriek of the train, no larger than a year-old infant, an achondroplastic dwarf without his parents' good proportions, with very short, plump baby arms and no legs to speak of. His forehead bulges above a big, perplexed face, mouth turned down at the corners. Like any child, he squirms petulantly in his seat under a sign which reads, 
Little enough to ride for free, little enough to ride your knee. Daddy Midget gives him a lemon lollipop. She has to cook dinner for eight people next Thursday. She picks out a five-quart casserole in Macy's basement, tries to charge it, discovers that all her credit cards are missing, buys it anyway, orders it sent. Geez, miss, didn't you inform credit yet? The elevator to credit is suffocatingly hot and reeks of fur and perfume. It stops at every floor, and by the eighth she has recalled that she has no charge account with Macy's. Sweating in her fur coat, she proceeds down the maze that leads to the subway platform through a crowd of people eating ice cream cones and asking which way to the Port Authority bus terminal. Nearly bumps into a soldier who has taken a post by a gum machine. Not an ordinary G.I., but someone on his way to a revolution. Leaf-patterned trousers tucked into combat boots, combat jacket of a different green, green beret pulled down nearly over his eyebrows, even his canteen is in camouflage, Only his gun is not. He holds his rifle butt-end down between his boots like a walking stick. He stares impassively over the crowd as though he thinks he is invisible, and perhaps he is. She has reached the last staircase when there is a voice at her back, a whisper. Hey, lady, you need help with your packages? But her hands are empty. She is holding very tightly to the railing, Another voice, middle-aged lady who inquires kindly, Are you sick, miss? Do you need some help? She shakes her head no, but the lady helps her down anyway, talking cozily. You know, I had a friend once who was so scared of the subway she'd get nauseous when the train came in. It's called claustrophobia. Well, finally the husband made her see the doctor. Well, it turned out that her brother locked her in a closet once when she was a bitty thing, and she'd forgotten all about it, but her heart remembered a leap of the heart. You know, it was a funny thing. After she got well and rode subways without thinking twice about it, she had one of those freak accidents and almost lost an arm on a flushing train. I bet the operations cost her more than the psychiatrist did. Well, honey, here's your train. Tottering onto the lit car, she supports herself against a post, breathes easier until the doors have closed, and the train starts down the dark passage. With a felt-tipped pen, someone has lettered on the L&M ad, God is a sadist. Quickly tiring of her own reflection in the dressing room mirrors, she buys the first dress she tried on, a silky blue bandlon number that makes her look thin as a doll. There is a delay when she tries to charge it. Shifting from foot to foot with impatience, says yes, she will report the loss. A very young girl, with a face like an angel's, sits in an armchair in the ladies' lounge, breast bare to her infant daughter. The baby nurses with an expression of concentration, pink palm closing and unclosing, rhythmically like a sea anemone. The mother's knees are spread in fatigue. Assorted clothes, diapers, bottles, and magazines are falling out of the department store shopping bags beside her chair. She looks as though she's been traveling a long time. She's just gone to sleep. Eyelashes hover like black spiders over her cheekbones. She snores. Baby loses the soda fountain and wails angrily. Her mother automatically readjusts the small head and closes her eyes upon the world once more, breathing onto it the syllables like prayer. Goddamn son of a bitch bastards. Breathe in, 
the nurse instructed. Pant harder. She tried to, like a good girl, sobbing obediently. It won't hurt so much this way. Actually, it hurt very little. It works like a vacuum cleaner. Nature, she said, abhors a vacuum. I usually have a cleaning lady, she told the fluorescent ceiling lights. A sip from the red flask in the toilet, followed by a rush of acid. Outside on Fifth Avenue, asbestos flakes eddy in spiral air currents like snow, the carcinogenic emission from the new skyscraper. Something blows into her eye before she can get out her dark glasses. She blinks to tear it away. Bells jangle. The saffron robes, the shaven-head Hindu followers chanting Hare Krishna surround her, offering their literature with gentle words. Under their sleazy, peach-tinted rayon saris, they wear sweaters and sweatshirts and sneakers instead of sandals. Surely they're in the wrong climate. They sing Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, snapping their belled fingers and jouncing to ward off the cold. The literature is called Back to Godhead and shows a circle of girls with pleated skirts like fans dancing beneath stylized Indian flowers around moon. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare, the hectic singers chant. Oh, my God, isn't that Al Silberstang from Fire Island, says a passerby, nudging her companion to a halt. Al Silberstang does not cease from his dance. His eyes dwell on inner secrets. She searches for money so she can escape their circle. Peace, peace, lady, says Al Silberstang, whirling away with her money. But there is no peace from the Hindus, no peace from the chestnut and pretzel sellers, one at each corner, warming their hands over the braziers and reiterating their spiel. Escaping from the street, she looks up to see where she is, a mistake. Her head begins to spin. What did she eat for breakfast? Here she is, the rival sex headquarters, St. Patrick's Cathedral. A man on the step brandishes a sign. Annoying, sick, H-bomb dictator will be punished at an old lady and an old mink and a walker going up the steps with the aid of a younger female, daughter or niece, who looks put upon and cold in her short cloth coat. The old lady's arm is grasped on the other side by a nun. You can tell it is a nun from the navy blue tailored outfit like an airline stewardess's and the truncated veil revealing a steel-gray curly bang. Nuns never used to have gray hair or calves. The nuns of her youth floated like blackbirds. Step by step by step, the old lady is guided through a small door set into the heavily ornamented bronze ones. Around the corner is the aftermath of a Filipino wedding, the small white bride shivering and smiling for the photographers. The nuns with their pale faces taught them myths about eternity and how to walk in processions. "'Tis the month of our mother, the blessed and beautiful days," the parochial schoolchildren sang in May, carrying their sheaves of wheat down suburban sidewalks under the magnolias. A pretty sight. Though she'd never really cottoned to Our Lady, she much preferred the Holy Ghost, perhaps because he was a bird. Heaven, hell, purgatory, limbo, where little unbaptized children lived pleasantly in a garden, crawling on the green grass, and it never snowed. 
Purgatory was where they melted your sins away. Hell was very hot. A little boy died, and a saint revived him. Oh, mother, he cried, I have been in such a terrible place. She is cold and hungry. The smell of burning chestnuts rises like incense. Get your hot chestnuts, get your pretzels. He scatters a handful of raw nuts over the coals, extends a bagful with a hand that is like a burnt pretzel, grins brilliantly. I bet you're hungry, pretty lady, I know you. Tugging at the door to the cathedral where she's never been, he eats terror, gulps tears, and spits catastrophes. The smell of incense Dazzling banks of red votive candles, the purple light from high stained-glass windows decorated with suffering saints. Tourists move chattily around the gloom of the nave. In the side aisles kneel the reverend few. She looks dizzily at the vaulted ceiling, light years away. She steadies herself on a granite basin. Then, to show she's all right, dabbles holy water from the font and blesses herself like the tourist just ahead. The basin has specks floating in it and a layer of silt. Her heart beats as though it were trying to get out. Looking for a place to sit down, she travels along an enormous aisle toward where she sees people as at the small end of the telescope her father gave her once when she was 13 and infatuated with science. It has been years since she was in church. And what a church. Are you supposed to cover your head these days? She has no cover, not even a handkerchief to pin her hair. At a side pew, occupied mostly by women, her knees signal no farther, and she slides in. Her uncovered scalp prickles dangerously. She thinks with longing of her flask. As she plans about getting back down the aisle, or at least behind a stone pillar, the women begin trickling out the other side of the pew. An elbow in the ribs... It is the niece or the daughter of the woman in the walker. Miss, could you please move along, or are you asleep, dope? Unable to reply, she shies into the aisle, abandoning, she will remember later in a crowded room, a brown and white box from Saks Fifth Avenue to the niece or the H-bomb man or St. Patrick or him, the god of fear. There's a convenient pillar, and what is this? A curtain cubicle behind a brass gate, private, hidden, a good place to take stock and think her way out, back to the right door. Sneaking a backward glance, she parts the white curtain, ducks in, groping for familiar leathery corners. Just as she has the cap off and is tilting the flask back, there is a hair-raising creak. Somebody else is only a breath away and listening and murmuring through a grill. Yamankind, fallen into the hands of the Nazis. Yes, my child, he says impatiently. Good heavens, somebody is answering. It is her own high parochial school voice, her very tongue snapping out the appropriate response. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been fifteen years since my last confession. At last she gets the bottleneck in her mouth. Alcohol is instantly absorbed through the stomach lining into the bloodstream. At once the molecules are joined up, spreading the cheerful news. Anticipatory silence. Perhaps he only understands German. She racks her brain. She has no wish to go spilling the secrets of her life to a stranger. 
First you confessed sins against the church, then against God. She remembers a sin against the church. I have missed Mass. How many times? Every time. Quick swallow, a rush of confidence. I used God's name in vain five times. I disobeyed my parents three times. I was rude to a nun once. I slapped my little sister. I was untruthful. Running out of sin, she adds desperately. I smoked marijuana. On how many occasions? I don't remember. He clears his throat, beginning to sound like a Viennese psychiatrist. So, is this all that you wish to tell me? Well, not quite. She stalls. Once more should do the trick. Then she realizes that now there are three of them in the confessional. Someone else is waiting on the other side, behind the priest, making a priest's sandwich, getting restless. She shifts heavily to assert her presence, probably the niece woman who called her dope. Oh, no, father, she says, tilting the flask back for another round. Not all of it reaches her mouth. There's spillage. The booth fills with the odor of alcohol in addition to that of Listerine. She is tempted to offer him a nip through the grill for his stomach's sake. But it's been such a long time, a weak giggle. Her time and the jig is up. The big ear is no longer fooled. My daughter, I suspect you are spoofing me. There are penitents waiting. You are wasting my time. Why are you here? What do you want? No answer. Do you want absolution? If you are in some kind of trouble, we shall discuss it in the rectory at 2.40 next Wednesday. Father Kleinhardt is the name. Father Kleinhardt, I am frightened. For your penance, say three Hail Marys. Now make an act of contrition. Switching tongues, he begins to absolve her in Latin. I am frightened to death, Father. But he chooses not to hear. She begins, Oh my God, I am heartily sorry, and slips out, leaving him committed to the end of his Latin prayer, noticing a sign taped to the side altar, Father Kleinhardt, English Deutsch. At the altar of St. Anthony, a prayer is posted in mock parchment, promising the reciter forty days' indulgence. She has got away with it. She is outside. She is free. The morning she left the northern island, a young deer escaped from it, the only one of the herd imported from Booth Bay Harbor who couldn't settle down but rampaged through the woods like a crazy thing and ate roses out of village gardens. After they found hoofprints on the beach, they put out salt for him in the woods. He passed her boat, swimming like a small horned seal in a mainland direction, it was too late and too foggy for the lobster smacks to find him. By the time she reached the city, he was fathoms deep, and the fish were grazing off his antlers. Taxi lady, said a cab driver outside the Port Authority bus terminal. The man drove demoniacally, hunched like a jockey over the wheel. Only when they reached her apartment did she observe that it was because he couldn't straighten his back. In the full glare of the street lamp, his features leaped at her. The thrust chin, the snub nose, the furrowed forehead with its huge wen, the maimed, cleft, two-fingered hoof of a congenitally deformed right hand. Smiling hilariously, he scratched at the wen. Take it easy now, lady, he told her. The dead deer lies among the rocks, nibbled bare by sea worms and crustaceans far from home. 
barnacles have attached themselves to his skeleton. When spring comes, a fisherman will draw up with his catch its alien skull and think it is something new. Once you've seen him, he will never let you get away with anything. Now it is time, definitely time, to start uptown, taking it easy and crossing with the lights. The sun has gone down, leaving a stain in the west. At a store window, she acknowledges with a slight smile her reflection, a thin woman in a white coat and big black glasses, soon to be middle-aged, puzzled because the years went so fast and the days so slowly and someday old. Killing time, she stops to light a cigarette and is nearly swept over by an energetic group of tiny children chattering in the half-light by Central Park. There are about eight of them, fat as chickadees in their snowsuits. Isn't it late for them to be out? I'm cold, complains one grumpy mite with thick glasses and a circle of mustard around her mouth to one of the two teachers, long-haired girls in furry coats like her own. They seem to have lassoed her. Then she realizes it's a rope. They're clinging to a rope with a teacher at each end, and she has got the middle. What a good idea. Little children will hold on if you tell them to. The teachers untangle her and say, Come along now, jerking the children briskly down the sidewalk. A small, spectacled girl has a pink balloon floating from the end of her little finger. There are a lot of pairs of spectacles for such a small group of kindergarten-aged children. The children are blind. These are blind children with their teachers, sightless among the seeing, though she can't see any too well herself in her dark glasses with the sun gone down, hurrying toward an uptown appointment. The hot light, an egg, a shiny egg dancing in a glass. Sunday morning she will burn the bacon and spill the scrambled eggs on the floor, trying to stamp out the fire in her bedroom slippers. Lying on a table, somebody cried, Hey, that hurts, it hurts, and yet it didn't hurt that much. Relax, don't fight it, said the nurse. Would you care for a cigarette? I'm afraid all I've got is Salem's, putting it between dry lips. An involvement of the inner space, a truly savage pain. Slurp, water whizzing in the basin. Will it travel down the sewers like an abandoned pet, eyeless, lost to the gene pool, never to breed? Doctor, having left the room, his assistant matter-of-factly sprinkled water over what was in the basin, saying, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. You are baptizing a newt, she said reproachfully. The nurse looked ashamed. Sorry, but I just have to do this. Say, you know I keep newts. I have tropical fish myself. Let's go to bed and tell lies. Almost there now. Committing our murders decently in private. Punching the moon-white elevator button, the elevator boxes her into a private space. She rises with it, shaking in silence. I don't know the enemy's you. You haven't heard his me. He greets her at the door, waving a martini glass, reeling her into the party. Oh, my God, am I glad to see you, she says. That was Laurie Moore reading Day-Old Baby Rats by Julie Hayden, which was first published in The New Yorker in 1972 and was collected in her 1976 book, The Lists of the Past, which is now out of print. The New Yorker Festival is back, 
and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival. Again, that's newyorker.com slash festival. See you there. So, Laurie, for you, when you're reading this, what's the first moment that you realize you're not in the hands of a stable narrator, that this, this woman is somewhat unreliable in her perceptions? I don't think I ever thought she was unreliable. I never thought that. I think she's under great duress, but she's incredibly sensitive and alert, and I trusted her completely in terms of, you know, narrating her own story. What's unstable is her life and her heart, but her narrative abilities are not unstable. I never I never thought she was unreliable. You mentioned earlier this inner voice that's, that's italicized in the text that says lines like, don't speak his name, he is everywhere like spring, his eyes are leaves. What What is that voice? What is she referring to? You know, I think it's a bit of a mystery. She's clearly, you know, a lapsed Catholic. And I have a Protestant's obsession with lapsed Catholics. I think they're incredibly interesting and full of poetic guilt. That seems to be what's going on here. She has internalized a godlike voice that she gives both to her fears, to her perceptions of, of authority and power outside of her. She's moving up and down between heaven and hell throughout the entire story. And there are images of God and images of, of the devil. And at the end, she presses that moon-like button on the elevator and she goes upward to see someone and go to a party, the party that would be heaven in a sense. And someone pulls her in and she says, oh, my God, capital G, am I glad to see you? So that, you know, there's this way in which she is recovering from Catholicism, still participating in it. She's a transitional figure between decades, between an old-fashioned idea of womanhood and femininity and what a contemporary modern world is bringing and doing to a figure such as that. What do you think is happening in the scene with the priest? Obviously, that's sort of freighted for her as as a lapsed Catholic, which is also what, what Julie Hayden was in life. She sort of bumbles into this confessional, half drunk, and then these phrases pour out of her. She knows exactly what she's supposed to say, but then she can't go through with with really what she needs to say. Right. She's She's lapsed. She's not really a believer. But if you're making a transition out of something as profound as Catholicism, it, it will cling to you, I assume. And when she goes into the confessional, part of her is still partaking of her childhood self and her childhood beliefs and, and, and hoping to be forgiven because she's living in a kind of unclear spiritual condition. So she's hoping to be forgiven in some old-fashioned way that she knows. On the other hand, she can't go through with it completely, and the, and the priest detects that and says, daughter, I fear you are spoofing me. 
and and shoes her on. When of course she's had an abortion, which is in the eyes of the priest at least a sin, and it's something that she's fully wrapped up in. To have a short story about an abortion is a very difficult thing. I mean, I think only Ernest Hemingway has done it well, in addition to Julie Hayden. And his was, you know, more from the man's point of view. You know, it's hills like white elephants, the two people very discreetly discussing it all at at the train station. This is right in there in an intimate way and in some ways is just so breathtaking and, and candid in its confronting of the mixed feelings, you know, a woman in this situation would have. It feels very real and very raw and very powerful, the emotions. The language actually feels very cared for and lyrical. You know, one thing that I felt while reading this story was, first of all, I was confused often about the time frame. I was never quite sure what was happening in the present day and what was happening in the past. I'm still not quite sure if the abortion happens on this day or if that's a flashback. I think that's a flashback. That's in the past tense. And I think she's going to the party, and and the the memory of the abortion is told in the past tense in two different places. Mm -hmm. Abortion is haunting the whole story. You see it coming up in in a lot of the other images, you know, the island in Maine, ends with these men with spears sort of up to their elbows in blood and blubber and and you get those day-old dead baby rats. There's sort of this constant imagery of of the kind of blood and, and death of something that hadn't even quite reached its time. Right. She's, she focuses a lot on, on animals and the deaths of animals and she identifies with them as well. It's not just that she sees them as symbols of the abortion, but she also, I think, sees them as an aspect of herself. And and I think the abortion is an aspect of herself, too. The deer that swims away and drowns and then is eaten, I mean, is also an aspect of her. She fears for herself. I mean, when she's trying to close up this kind of faux confession at the end, she frantically says to the priest, I am frightened to death. And you can feel that in her. Well, you know, Hayden herself struggled with phobias all of her life, and one of the strongest of these phobias was a fear of elevators and tall buildings. And she did actually, you know, according to her sister, whom I spoke to recently, she she would carry a flask and take sips in order to help her get through the difficult things, and possibly those those fears are what led to the alcoholism in, at the end of her life. But I thought it was funny, especially with that image at the end of her, of her riding the elevator and it being a sort of blissful experience <laughs> that this was very far removed from her own personal feelings. Well, at that point, she's she's pretty potted, I think. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's had a lot to drink. It's interesting, you know, I have a copy of her first collection, which I, I didn't have before. And the picture of her on, on the book jacket is very fetching. She looks like the young Diane Keaton, really. And then the jacket copy says curious things like that her stories show us in a fresh way how pain and joy turn into knowledge. And I I wondered about that. You know, that's typical of jacket copy, I suppose. But I thought, I don't know that this particular story shows pain and joy turning into knowledge. It just (laughs) sort of shows pain and joy turning into each other. Yeah, well, that's a good assessment. You know, it's interesting to me also is that we're we're inside this 
head for for the length of the story, which is going in a million directions. And at the same time, she gives us a very detailed, comprehensive image of the streets of New York in the 70s. You know, you can fully picture the environment in, in a very clear way. I mean, perhaps that's what you meant when you were saying that the narrator is, is stable in that sense. You know, and I think that was one of the things that first appealed to me about this story. It's set in New York in the 70s when New York was going bankrupt. It was really kind of dangerous and messy and, and much more than it is now. And at that time, my parents had moved to New York in the 70s. And I couldn't find that New York magazine, New York, when I walked around Manhattan. But when I read this story, this was the New York I felt I too could see, <laughs> you know, the craziness and the, but the, but the interesting craziness of it all, the chaos of it all. You know, you mentioned Google, and, and of course, I looked for Julie Hayden on Google, and there's really almost nothing still, you know, as we said, she's been... She's been mostly forgotten. But I did find the New York Times reviews of the book when it came out of the collection, one of which was quite positive and one um, was quite aggressive. And there was a paragraph in that I'm just going to read to you. Her eye is faultless, like a twitchy addict scanning the crowd for his pusher. Her glance flicks from foreground to midground and between here and the horizon. Miss Hayden sees all, birds, animals, people, paper bags from the A&P, flowers, ashtrays, baseball scores, the emptiness in someone's eyes. All is seen and all is recorded, and just possibly all is a little bit too much. Now, it's sort of a very underhanded way of criticizing the stories, but there is that, that accumulation of detail. Everything sort of deserves comment, and, and everything that passes before her eyes sort of in the story comes up in a way that's kind of lyrical and observed. Well, it may feel like everything, but it's all selected. I mean, it's it's dense and beautifully detailed, but it it is selected. It's not every single thing. It just may feel like that to someone for whom this particular sensibility and prose style is just doesn't sit with them. It's beautifully done, I think. It's a little hard to read, I have to confess. I mean, hard to read out loud. But to see it on the page is to really see how carefully she both selected and wrote all of her descriptions. They're really nicely done. Well, thank you so much, Laurie. Oh, thank you, Deborah. Laurie Moore is the author of many books, including the short story collections Birds of America and Self-Help and the new novel A Gate at the Stairs. You can read some of her stories on our website. You can also hear Louise Erdrich read and talk about Laurie Moore's story Dance in America in a previous episode of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast. Check out all the previous episodes on our website, newyorker.com, or in the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.